more than something we do. It's the attitude of our hearts, living God. And you know our hearts. Cleanse our hearts and our thoughts, we pray. We've sung, you are all I need, and we believe it, but help our unbelief. You are all I need, we live it and we don't. Help us as we come to your word. To allow it to speak above our prejudice. Allow it to speak through our blindness. So cleanse our hearts and our thoughts, we pray, by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. For Jesus' sake, amen. I'd like to continue this morning along and around the themes of money and so on that we were looking at in the autumn. Seems such a, a long time ago now. Money madness. And I want to talk this morning about something that is an approach to life that we do not see very often or hear being talked about very often. Or if it is talked about, it's not talked about very positively. I'm talking about living simply. We probably can't remember the last time, or if ever there was a time, we were asked how our simplicity of living was going. Yet it's one of those recognized disciplines in the Christian faith that the spiritual giants say good things about. They speak often of the life of simplicity as one of the characteristics of the road that takes you deep into the presence of God. One of those keys that unlocks the reality of God's presence even at the end or the beginning of the 21st century. Gregory the Great, for example, said purity of heart and simplicity are of great force with Almighty God. Difficult for us to define. Probably it's easier for us to describe. All our lives are so easily full of clutter. Things that take up our time, things that demand our attention, things that fill our existence in such a way that every single day God is pushed out, crowded out, and no longer the simple, single focus of our living. Yet our goal, if we had to write an essay, we would say our goal is to live our lives singly focused on God. To use the words of Thomas Kelly, the divine center, living out of the divine center. Simplicity brings freedom 
from all the things that hold us in bondage, that distract our gaze, that grab our hearts, and stop us living most fully focused on God. Like all of these kind of things, it's about an inner attitude more than an outward action. Although the outward action will inform your inner heart and your inner heart will inform your outward action. If we try and develop a lifestyle of simplicity by simply doing the right things and our heart is not in it, we have become nothing more than the Pharisees, full of outward appearance. We're deceiving others and ourselves. Or, conversely, if our heart attitude is right, we will find ourselves expressing that in the things that we do. And I'll come back to those things towards the end. An inner attitude and an outward action or lifestyle. Simplicity then promises freedom. Freedom from those things that we are in bondage to. And there are three things that classically theologians have understood that we are in bondage to. The first is bondage to possessions, materialism. The second is bondage to self, duplicity. The third is bondage to others, our image. The tyranny of things, the tyranny of self, and the tyranny of people. I'm going to look at the first one now this morning as part of this Money Madness series. Simplicity then is freedom from the bondage of these things, and for this morning, in particular, freedom from the bondage of possessions. Simplicity is to discover what Richard E. Bird did after four months alone in the barren Arctic. He writes, I am learning that a man can live profoundly without masses of things. Do you want to live with masses of things? Or do you want to live profoundly? It's another one of those questions where right away we feel the tug in our hearts. Do we want to live profoundly? Of course we do. All of us want to live profoundly, I trust. But actually we rather like masses of things. We're part of a culture for whom the accumulation of things has become a god. What we have matters much more than what we have. What we have matters much more than what we have. What, we, what matters is not that I have a car, but the kind of car that I have. If you have a four-wheel drive, forgive me just for a moment. I would love one. I used to have one until some hooligan stole it from me. That made me a little cross. A four-wheel drive car has become the icon of our need for things. Up and down the UK, suburbia is littered with four-wheel drive jeeps, and the roughest terrain they will go on is the high streets. Now, I'd love a big four-wheel drive jeep to go with my big physique. <laughs> so... I'm not in any way pointing a finger that isn't at myself, but it kind of encapsulates the way we create these things that we don't really need, but they stand for it. And maybe you've got a four-wheel drive because you need a big car, blah 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 and so on and so forth. Why do we make cars that can drive up a steep mountain and can travel at 160 miles an hour? Why do we build them and market them? Why? Clearly, convertibles are an exception. It says that in Deuteronomy chapter 25. 
You can, you can look that up when you get home. Convertibles are mainly, merely a way of embracing God's creation on a summer's day. So with the risk of stereotyping about cars, sometimes in our homes it doesn't matter what, that we've got a kitchen. Actually what matters is what kind of kitchen we have. We don't meet many people who are actually at angst with their life because they haven't got a kitchen, just at angst with life because it's not the kitchen that they think they want. What matters is not that I have a computer, a Walkman, an MP3 player, a washing machine, a camera, but what kind of computer do I have? How fast is it? What kind of camera? How many pixels? What kind of MP3 player? How many songs can I store on the darn thing? And the mobile phone is the classic icon. You see no adverts for mobile phones saying, if you buy this mobile phone, you will hear the other person at the end speaking very clearly. (laughs) Nobody seems interested in whether you can hear anybody talking or not. It's about how it looks, about what it does, what it says about who you are. It's not that you've got a mobile phone. It's what kind. And you know that with kids, don't you? They're growing up and they're thinking, I need a mobile phone. And they get a mobile phone, but in about three hours, they're dissatisfied because they see one that's better. It's not that they want a phone, it's the kind of phone. We really must understand, writes Richard Foster, that the lust for affluence in contemporary society is psychotic. It's psychotic because it has completely lost touch with reality. We crave things we neither need nor enjoy. Not sure about the last bit, but the thrust is very strong and clear. Do you agree with Arthur Gish? We buy things we do not want to impress people we do not like. (laughs) Oh, you do, right. (laughs) We're made to feel ashamed, society that, that is, tries to make us feel ashamed to wear clothes or drive cars until they're worn out. The mass media have convinced us that to do so would be out of step with fashion and therefore to be out of step with reality. It's time we awaken to the fact that conformity, writes Richard Forster, is a sick... Sorry, it's time that we awaken to the fact that conformity to a sick society is to be sick. Until we see how unbalanced our culture has become... At this point, we will not be able to deal with the mammon spirit within ourselves, nor will we desire Christian simplicity. Interesting, too, that even our mythology has become invaded with the spirit of our age. What is the great mythological success story? It is the poor person that becomes rich, the pauper who becomes a prince, and so on. You don't read many great mythologies where the rich person becomes poor. Now, it's all rather hard because it smacks hard against the way all of us live. So rather than debate the rights and wrongs of all of these commentators and our own observations of our world, let's allow God's word for a moment to speak in to this situation, to allow God's word to address this whole area of economics. Living simply in the Old Testament. Some very powerful words written way back that Margaret read to us. The land must not be sold permanently. Why? Because ultimately it's not yours, but it's mine, says God. And then there was that lovely verse, a little 
a little further down that Margaret read. Verse 14, if you sell land to one of your countrymen or buy any from him, do not take advantage of each other. What a commentary on contemporary business. Do not take advantage of each other. Isn't that what we try to do all of the time? To buy from your countrymen on the basis of the number of years since the Jubilee. Why? Because there will come a day when it's all equal again. And we'll start this process from the beginning. That was the idea. 50 years is up, all goes back, start all over again. It was God's check and balance in the midst of a greedy world. Why, if you don't have that moment of stop, what happens? The rich get and the poor get. Those with the advantage at year 49 are further in the lead at year 59 and year 69 and year 89 and so on. And God says, no, don't let it be like that. Make sure you understand how it works. It's not yours, it's mine. Live as though it's mine. Do business, deal with one another. But remember, the day comes, it all goes back. You start all over again. And that was the principle of the Jubilee. How radical going against every contemporary belief and practice about establishing your lead and capitalizing on the lead that you have established. Because somehow it's your right because you have achieved it. No, don't live that way. And then thirdly, the desire for wealth to be controlled. Do not trust in extortion or take pride in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. It's a very profound final clause. Nothing wrong with your riches increasing. In fact, there's lots, the Bible says, about handling carefully what you've been given. But even though your wealth increases, do not set your heart on them. Do not desire the place we've been before. In Proverbs 11, verse 28, whoever trusts in his riches will you read that one? Whoever trusts in his riches will, will fall. But the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. It's a bit like the Ten Commandments, isn't it? You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his ox, which kind of assumes you can tell the difference. <laughs> what does the New Testament have to say? What are the words of Jesus? Jesus wages war on the contemporary world of his day, which was nothing like as materialistic as our own. Wealth, he says, is a dangerous rival to God because no one can serve two masters. Again, we've been here before. You cannot serve both God and money. And so he looked at his disciples one day and he said, actually, blessed are you who are poor because the kingdom of heaven belongs, has an affinity with you. But woe to you who are rich, for you, are already, you have already received your comfort. Wealth is a stumbling block to entering the kingdom of God. It's not that the wealthy can't enter God's kingdom, because everything is possible with God, but it gets in the way. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of an eagle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. It went right across their cultural understanding. And they said, well, who then? Who can be saved? With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Why? Why is it easier for a camel to go through the eye of an eagle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? Why? Because where your treasure is, 
there your heart will be. If you are rich, the chances are you will be tempted in the way that every person has been tempted to set their heart on their riches. And if you set your heart on your riches, you cannot set your heart on God. Therefore, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Because wealth grips the heart. Wealth grips the heart. Remember the day this young man, he was a yuppie. Old word now, isn't it? He was a yuppie. He had the smart car and the flash suits. And he went to Jesus one day with what he thought was a clever question. Because he thought he was on top. You see, in every era of his life, people looking around him would congratulate him for being on top. No doubt he was top of his profession. No doubt uh, he, he lived in the smart houses. He was at the top of society. And he goes to Jesus expecting another affirmation that this man, that another affirmation that he was on top. And he says, almost tricking Jesus, tell me, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? He knew what Jesus would say. Jesus would say, well, do all the commandments. He knew already what he would answer. He said, well, that's fine. I do all of those. Not only am I top in business, not only am I top economically, but I have taken all these laws and I am up to date and on top with each one of them. And Jesus said, if that's true, then sell it all. Got him. Got him. If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. And it mattered more than being on top when it came to the things of God. It mattered more. And then there's this scary story, really. The one that we would, well, the one we call the rich farmer, and we at first glance think he's rather prudent. He's rather sensible. He, like all of us, maybe make provision for his future. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. My pension is so big, I don't know where to invest it. I know I'll build a bigger barn to put my pension in. I'll go to a better bank to put my pension in. So he built the better barn, the better bank, and he put his pension in it, and so on and so forth. Uh, and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And God says, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? It wasn't the fact that he prepared for his future that God was angry at. It was the fact that he invested his life now in preparing for his future. He didn't live for now. He lived for what one day would be. And so he squandered the opportunities that God was giving him. A life of accumulation is foolish. And so we must be willing to give it all away. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted. For the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, is like a merchant. Like a merchant looking for that finest pearl. And one day he discovers where it is. It's in a field. The field costs everything. So he sells it all to get the pearl. And so Jesus speaks into the heart of the question of economics. More than Christian teaching through the ages has given him credit for. He says far more about what we do with our money and our possessions than we are often comfortable with. And if in a comparatively simple society, 
Jesus gave such emphasis to these things. How much more should we who live in a very affluent culture think carefully about these economic questions? And the rest of the New Testament, you can study it for yourself, follows very much the same vein. And just to create some balance, it's not as if possessions are all bad. Sometimes we can go to the other extreme, and people have gone to the other extreme. They've rejected materialism and gone for asceticism as a kind of balance. I'll get rid of everything that's worldly. I'm not allowed anything, any earthly possessions, because it's all bad. This material world is bad and therefore should be avoided like the plague. Quite the opposite. The Bible is clear that forced poverty is evil. The Bible is clear that God led his people to a land flowing with milk and honey. God's heart is not that people should live in desperate poverty. As if living out some kind of spiritual life that way. God does provide abundantly for his people. Now all of that needs to be held in tension with the fact that 80% of our world is desperately poor today. But we can see God's heart is not that we live a life of wretched poverty. That's not God's vision for us either, any more than it is for us to be so caught up in our worldly wealth that we can no longer see the wood for the trees. Simplicity is the only thing that sufficiently reorientates our lives so that possessions can be genuinely enjoyed without destroying us. Without simplicity, we either capitulate to the mammon spirit of this present evil age, or we fall into an unchristian, legalistic asceticism. Both lead to idolatry, because both are spiritually lethal. Simplicity is not being in bondage to what we have, but content in both abasement and abounding. I know what it is, says Paul, to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. And I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. It's a place to be, isn't it? Don't you think? Where the good things are a blessing, but they never own us. Jesus summed it up. Watch out. Be on your guard then against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. An alien visiting our culture would be forgiven for thinking that it did. So let's get back. As we come to a close, that internal attitude and that external expression of it. I want to ask you some questions. I want to ask myself some questions. Some questions that challenge us to think about what Jesus has taught, what we've read in the Old Testament, and to see where, where does my life connect with this. So number one, do we receive what we have as a gift from God? Do you receive all that you have as a gift from God? Do we work but know that it is not our work that gives us what we have? Do we know that we live by grace even when it comes to our daily needs? What on earth did it mean to pray, give us today our daily bread? Do we know that we're dependent on everything? On God for everything. 
Deuteronomy warns us. Warns us about the trap it's easy to fall into. I earned that. That's mine. I worked hard for it. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. No, no, no. It goes on. It's God's. Do you receive what you have as a gift from God? I want to challenge you this week to think about all the things that make up your life and recognize that above and beyond the physical things that made those things part of your responsibility, there is a God who provides for your needs. And secondly, do we trust God with what we have? Do we trust God? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are, they, are you not much more valuable than they? Martin Luther writes on, on this verse. He says, you see, he's making the birds our schoolmasters and teachers. It is a great and abiding disgrace that in the gospel a helpless sparrow should become a theologian and a preacher to the wisest of men and daily should emphasize this to our eyes and ears as if he was saying to us, look, you miserable man, as the birds sing in the trees in the morning, do we trust God with what we have? Do we trust God with what we have? And do we willingly share what we have? If you have a lovely home, do you share it? If you can cook lovely meals, do you share them? If you have and someone doesn't, will you lend it? Or is it yours? Yours to keep, yours to protect, invested by you, given to you, for you, just for you. If our goods are not available to the community, writes Richard Forster, when it's clearly right and good, then they are, he says, stolen goods. The reason we find such an idea so difficult is our fear for the future. We cling to our possessions rather than sharing them because we're anxious about tomorrow. Many of us find operating like that really hard. You can bet your bottom dollar after a sermon like this on Sunday, sometime this week, someone will give you something really nice and new. Great, mine. And the next day, someone will say, can I borrow that? <gasps> no. It's mine. Inner attitudes. Do we trust God with what we have? Are we willing to share what we have? Do we wake up tomorrow grateful to God for all that we have? And then some very quickly, some external actions, some questions just to help us get our heads around it. What does it look like to live in this kind of way? How do you answer these Questions. Do we buy things for their usefulness rather than their status? Do we buy clothes that we need or because it's simply a new season? Could we have bought a cheaper car that was just as useful but not as prestigious? Do we live in a small house because it's got a better postcode? And so on and so on and so on and so on. Do we reject anything that's producing an addiction in us? How attached are you to the things that are around us, to the way that you live? Simplicity is freedom, not slavery. Coffee, if you think it's controlling you, then cut down, give it up. Make sure you're not a slave to it. Alcohol, every day you choose to have that glass of wine. Could you manage without it 
or is it exerting a measure of influence over you? TV. Can you live without TV? Money. Money grips your heart. Give it away. Let your heart loosen a bit. Simplicity is freedom. What things enslave us? What things do we believe we cannot live without? Because they stand in the place of God. Thirdly, do you give things away? It's, it's interesting, isn't it? At the beginning of a new year, everyone's trying to uh, declutter their lives. It's the thing to do, particularly at the moment. To declutter or to de-accumulate masses of things that simply complicate our life. Things that need to be sorted and then sorted again. Things that need to be tidied up. Things that need to be fixed when they're broken. And our life can be simply the product, the accumulation of our things. Do we refuse the enticement that we need the latest gizmo? Propagandists try to convince us that because the newest model of this or that has a new feature, we must get rid of the old one and buy the new one. Sewing machines have new stitches. Stereos will have new buttons. Cars have new designs. And the dogma needs to be carefully scrutinized. New features seduce us, and they take our time and our effort and our energy Probably that refrigerator will serve us quite well for the rest of our lives, even though they now make ones that produce ice. It's about our attitude towards things. Must have, can't do without, never satisfied. Do we enjoy without owning? There's this huge illusion that if I own it, I can control it, and if I can control it, I feel it will give me more pleasure. No. In fact, I've discovered that's not true at the moment. Uh, Kerry's car is in the garage and uh, getting some work done, and the garage have given us a car. You can crunch the gears as much as you like, can't you? No, I didn't say that. But there is a certain freedom in letting the kids eat in the back seat knowing that it's going back in a couple of days' time, praise God. I didn't say that either. Um, do we share a deep appreciation for creation? Simplicity is to discover once again that the earth is the Lord's. It's a great time of year for this. As the mornings are beginning to brighten just a little, evenings are beginning to lengthen, up until this last week or so, I've walked the dog in the pitch black. I've walked down the lanes by a house, there's nobody there, except the other morning there was somebody there, and we literally walked straight into each other uh, in the darkness. But now the light is just beginning to come up, and the birds begin to sing. Do we appreciate what we've been given? And I've said this before, do we have a healthy appreciation or a scepticism of buy now, pay later. You know that thing that you buy now, you don't have to pay till later, and it's all shiny and new, and when you're just about fed up with it and want the next thing, you get the letter to say you have to pay for the thing you're no longer interested in. That's a real, real gutter when that happens. Don't do it. Don't end up paying for something that you're already fed up with. Because what will you do? You'll buy the new thing on another buy now, pay later scheme. Where will that end you? In debt. Is that a nice place to be? 
No. And we live in a world, we live in a society that is now crippled by debt. And they could only now live like that because they cannot see another way out. Maybe we'll do a morning together on debt. Reject anything that leads to the oppression of others. So what about it? What about this call to live free of these things? Can I give it away? If I can't, it's got me. Can I lend it to others? If I can't, it's got me. Do I recognize that it's God's, not mine? If I don't, it's got me. Do I live as if it's mine and not for God's purpose? Then it's got me. Do I live as if it matters more than God? Then it's got me. You can see why getting rid of most stuff is useful for centering on God. Because so easily it can get you. Can I borrow that? And you know in your heart you should say yes, but your head's going, no, 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 no. Let's get some perspective as we sing our next song.